um, thank the Coast Salish peoples for having us here on your uh, traditional and ancestral land. Uh, it's also unceded, so thank you for having us here as well as Artisan Church. Um, if you are tuning in from afar, um, or you don't know me, my name is Kathy Kwan. Uh, I, I use she, her pronouns, and um, a little bit about me. So I, I've been a part of the artisan community for uh, just over nine years now. Um, the first and, and the last time that I preached uh, with artisan, at least, was in February of 2013. Um, so that's uh, just over eight years ago. And uh, later in that same year, I actually came out to both Lance and Nelson, um, who were gracious um, recipients of that. And um, as far as I understand, this is pretty close to, uh, if not the actual first week that I could officially preach at Artisan, again, as a person who identifies as queer. Um, <laughs> The, the peanut crowd over there is thrilled. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought it'd be helpful to get that sort of metaphorical elephant um, out of our, our room. For those of you who are new to our community, uh, or just popping in to say hello, um, the sort of insufficient backstory there is that um, Artisan has recently begun our journey as a self-described third-way church. Um, that is a third way on marriage equality and gender identity. Uh, to, me that, to me, that means a, a couple things simultaneously. So one is that there no longer exist certain barriers to involvement, teaching, and leadership at Artisan that are solely on the basis of, of gender identity or sexuality. Obviously, there are other bases that we hold dear, and we continue to. Um, this could be interpreted as functionally fully affirming, except for another part, which is um, that there exist genuine differences uh, in theological beliefs, not only within our community on gender and sexuality, but more poignantly in our actual pastoral staff and leadership. Um, and that is, that is really material, I think, here. So some of the foundational beliefs then that tie this community together are the triune God made manifest in our midst, the centrality of Jesus, and our desire to be apprenticed to him as a community. I will say that Artisan is not the same church that I joined uh, many years ago, and I also have changed uh, a lot since that time. Those core beliefs, though, have not changed, and that's been my experience, uh, both for our church and for me as well. Uh, which for me lends to a particular kind of uh, gratitude for the journeys that we have been on. So much more to say about that, but for now, uh, let's dive into scripture. The text I'll be preaching from today as part of the series on the third way is from Acts chapter 16. Um, it's a long one, so I will drive through it, and hopefully it's one that is familiar to you and you can follow along. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a, a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, those men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed. So many of you may relate to, to my personal experience on this. I was um, raised in a cultural setting where I was encouraged to read biblical stories like Acts 16 that I just read as if I was always one of the main characters. So the word that God had for me for the faith communities I was in was often limited to a function of what the person preaching had derived. And that derived word was often understood as the word God had for the hero, the martyr, the protagonist, Paul, Silas, maybe Lydia in more white liberal environments. 
maybe even the slave girl in the extra progressive churches or Christian communities. And as a queer woman of color and a daughter of an immigrant, of immigrant parents, there were many times in my life when I had little internal reference for the interpretation of scripture that was being offered. More and more as I grew older and connected more deeply with myself and my identity, it made less and less sense to me. I did not hear from God what they had heard. But I didn't have the tools or the reference points to fully recognize why or what that meant either. Nowadays, I have these super disturbing reminders sometimes in reading scripture of the fact that generations of white slave owners in North America and Europe would read the same Bible that their slaves read or heard. Black slaves reading Exodus, white slave owners reading Exodus. And then the twisted part, the, the super disturbing part, is that the slave owners probably read themselves into the stories as if they were the Israelites, the slaves, or in other parts of scripture, the Jews, the disciples, Jesus. That's how they read scripture. And somehow they duped themselves into believing that one, there was a single interpretation captured by their own, and two, that theirs was the right one. White men with power and influence in and around those conversations wrote what some of what we call Christian theology today. Systematic theology is what it was called in seminary. Never considering, let alone accepting, that the characters in scripture they were most alike were Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the slave drivers, Caesar, the Roman soldiers, the jailers. That's who they are in these stories. Another way to say it is that they never considered that the word that God had for Pharaoh was in fact the word that God had for them, let my people go. And then we, the church in the West, have built whole frameworks worldviews, legacies of belief around oppressors interpreting the experience of the oppressed in scripture. And the brutal thing is that we continue to uphold those interpretations today. For all the white churches I've attended throughout my life, I was certainly taught to read scripture as if one, they were even stories with protagonists or heroes. We've been trained to read stories as if there is an intended clear good guy and bad guy, and that's the point. And two, I was taught that in this false framework, I was always the protagonist or the hero, that the words God had for me were the ones he had for the hero or the martyr or the slave. I've thought a lot about the way we still do this, the way we absolve ourselves from the fact that we engage in the world according to the very things God hates and is trying to liberate people from. The fact that the more privilege we have, the more we want things to just stay the way that they are. The way we idolize decorum and control in and around our lives, even if it means constraining and binding someone else's. The way we find disruption threatening. The way we put intellectual boundaries around people's liberation from inequity, injustice, and oppression as if we've earned the right to have any say 
or that it even makes sense at all for us to. We are deeply affected watching movies like 12 Years a Slave. We are outraged when we hear about racially motivated violence, and rightly so. But then we play devil's advocate at every turn when it comes to people actually envisioning and living and trialing their freedom, their pain, their anger, their liberation. Their response to God's word for the oppressed, for them. I hear things like, why do they have to loot or riot? Why are they so angry? I think there's a better way of bringing about change, a more reasonable, diplomatic way that appeals to people like me. Let's keep ourselves in the center here, our comfort, our ideas, our brilliance and wisdom, our cleverness, reason, and logic. Let us preserve our precious sense of goodness at their expense. I know the better way for black and indigenous people to bring about their own liberation and to genuinely experience it. I also know the timing, and it's not now, or at least it's a little bit slower than this, and it's on my terms, and in the end, I must feel like my contribution was validated and in fact that I was not only the protagonist, but a hero. I was a sort of Jesus for black and indigenous people. Turns out God's story was about me all along. Most of us in this community know nothing of what it means to be enslaved. We are not the biblical Israelite. We are not the biblical Jew. We are the Roman citizen. We are the jailer. We are the slave owner. At best, we are a tax collector open to conversion. But for the vast majority of us, we are never who we were taught to believe ourselves to be in the reading and interpretation of scripture. And so we are sorely disconnected from what we have to learn from the word of God from the true nature of our separation from God, from the forgiveness we are in desperate need of, from our road of conversion and transformation, and so our actual proximity to the presence of God here on earth. Our pitiableness is that our position in the world shrouds us from understanding who God even is. I want us to consider something. I I need us. We need to consider something. In this story, we are not Paul. We're not Silas. We're not Lydia. We're not the slave girl. We're not one of the other unnamed prisoners. That is not the word God has for us that will bring the kingdom rushing in. That is not how we will discover the part that we are meant to play. Instead, I offer two things. One, in order for us to understand the word of God as God speaks it to Lydia, the slave girl, Paul, Silas, the prisoners, we must listen to those who have actually lived and do live those experiences. We must listen to those who have actually lived and do live those experiences. A short list here, Karl Bart? Nope. John Calvin? Nah. Alistair McGrath? Not a chance. 
N.T. Wright, though. Wrong again. If you're curious who then you should read or listen to, try this. Take one hour, just one hour, out of your week and start to find out. Put in the time and effort and own your journey of conversion and transformation. Second thing, reread scripture asking God two questions. Who am I actually in this story? And what word do you have for me so that I may bring about your kingdom and not my own? I will tell you this is dangerous stuff. You cannot go to those places. You cannot ask those questions and expect not to be rattled and turned inside out. These are the places where you will not be able to hear what God has to say to you and live without God's help. Lord, have mercy, let it crush us, but just not unto death. That is the realm that we are talking about here. And that means no more denying the oppressed bodies of real people to keep our own selves safe. It means breaking that cycle of capitalistic dehumanization, consumerism of people for our social and economic gain. It means recognizing that breaking that cycle that we are part of is actually what Paul and Silas were sent to prison for when they released that slave girl from the fortune-telling spirit. And for those of us who struggle with criticisms of capitalism and free markets, capitalism was built and operated on the foundation of structural oppression, enslavement, and active, intentional dehumanization of people. It is not neutral. In this man-made system, wealth is what begets wealth. And sometimes hard work is involved. But you know where hard work is almost always involved? Poverty, enslavement. Enslavement to systems intended, designed to crush you. I'll be the first to say, I am a hard worker. I work my ass off. And it has contributed in part to the successes I experience today. All things equal, hardworking me gets further than not hardworking me. And I can absolutely acknowledge that there is no day of my entire life that I have had to work as hard as so many folks battling poverty and to no avail. That's real. That, 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 that is real. The energy that fuels capitalism turns out is not hard work. It is enslavement, oppression, and dehumanization of certain people. It is various iterations and permutations of businessmen owning a slave girl for their own economic gain. Our role is to understand how we leverage our Roman citizenship, the privileges we've been conferred in order to demolish enslavement, oppression, and patent dehumanization, to somehow get over our own selves, to severely deprioritize our terror of being misconstrued or disliked by our circles of belonging, and to prioritize a vision of humanity actually worth fighting for, worth being a part of. Being a devil's advocate is easy. Doing the actual work of anti-oppression and liberation, that's working hard. 
And I want to believe that's what we're up to here at Artisan even. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. It is actually maddening to me how strong the temptation is to get caught up in the minutia of individual personal rights, individual slights, small rationalities, and petty logic. It makes me wonder about struggling with small faith and questioning the value of belief. Maybe we actually just don't want that kind of disruption in our lives. Maybe we are actually willing to keep the kingdom of God from certain people if it keeps our anxieties and our insecurities at bay. I'll just take a moment for transparency here and say that I am incredibly uncomfortable right now. This isn't some super chill occasion for me. I did not wake up one day thinking, oh yeah, this is what I'd like to say. <laughs> this is how I can make friends. <laughs> this, is, this is uncomfortable for me. This is uncomfortable for me to say. This is uncomfortable for me to hear myself say. Which is why, as much as possible, I've tried to say we. I am certainly not absolved of this. Yes, I am a queer woman of color, and that has had implications for the challenges that I've faced and continue to face in my life. And my intersectional identities are in tandem with my countless privileges. I belong to one of the most privileged identities of color as a light-skinned East Asian. I straddle worlds of some discrimination against immense privilege. So the reason I'm sharing this is because I believe in this community, in Artisan Church. It's why I'm here. It's why I'm still here. To return to some of the things I was sharing in the beginning of my sermon, so many people have asked me over the years, why are you still at Artisan? So many slights, so many hurts, so many exclusions. Sometimes I've said, where the hell else am I going to go? Sometimes I've said, I don't know. But usually I do know. And it's that I know God is here. That God is at work. And I think we have the ingredients to make something truly beautiful and revolutionary. This shift to the third way on gender and sexuality that we've just adopted as a church community, I've been asked about it a lot. And some people are like, that's disingenuous. If you're not fully affirming you're exclusionary, can you imagine a third way church on the full inclusion of black and indigenous people? Does that make any sense to you? And I've said, I think you're right. And I've heard others who have said, you have stricken, stricken scripture as interpreted through traditional Christian theology. And I've also said, you're right. Thank you for noticing. Appreciate you. But all jokes aside, people, all, people have also asked me about our process. What was your process? How did you do it? Maybe it's replicable. And I say, I don't know that it is. Take the same imperfect process we've taken, modify it, improve it, send it away to another church, almost guaranteed it will not work. Because the reason why I think Third Way works at Artisan Church is because of who we are. Not because of how we did it. We did it that way because of who we are. I want to believe Third Way works for us in this moment at least because we've built trust with one another 
and we love one another. And because that trust and love is built on having hurt each other already, our trust and love are purified by the fires of tears, anger, hurt, loss. And then the decisions to apologize, stick around, have patience, extend compassion, reconcile. That's different. I hope that we understand what we've just done here in our move to third way. If I hearken back to what Nelson said last week, yes, we are on a unity movement. Two things about unity. One, it requires difference. The difference between unity and conformity is the existence of difference. Two, in a utopia where equality actually exists, our unity with one another across difference can be shared unity. But in the world we actually live in, we are either asking folks on the margins to join our regime, or we are humbly recognizing that we must give up our own in order to join theirs. The unity movement we have embarked on is unifying ourselves towards the vision of the underrepresented and the marginalized in scripture. That's different. In a topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom, that is near. Inclusion means reconciling ourselves to those on the margin and asking for them to include us, not the other way around. Perhaps for many of us and for our community, we have an opportunity to be reborn. This is our born-againness, is to seek God through those with whom God is near, to seek God through, whom, through those with whom God is near, and through our inclusion to discover God is not who we believed, but is greater beyond our imagining. Amen.